And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak, and you can always find a lot of the articles and statements that I'm referring to in this edition and all the editions of Novak Now by following my Twitter feed, which I highly recommend just to fact check me, let alone to get some more information that might, you might find interesting. And my Twitter feed is at JakeJakeNY. It's uh, Jake twice, at JakeJakeNY. And again, there'll be a number of articles and historical events that I'm going to be referring to in this edition of Novak Now. So I highly recommend you follow the Twitter feed so you can get more information on, on the things I'm referring to. Um, well, it's it's important to always remember that information and facts have become so fluid. You know, I remember about not even 10 years ago, it was more like five or six years ago, the big argument that people were having uh, in the kind of the culture wars was this whole argument that people have feelings and feelings are really important, and of course they're important. Uh, and then there were people on the conservative side, most namely people like Ben Shapiro, who were putting as their slogans, facts don't care about your feelings. And that would be an interesting conversation to have and an interesting argument to have if, there w- if it weren't for one nagging thing. Facts are not agreed to as fa- to be facts by almost anybody these days. I mean, we can't even agree on some basic facts right now. And it's causing such a huge problem for moving ahead as a country. If we're just talking about the United States, of course, it's an issue in Israel and every country. But uh, it's, it's, it's such a tremendous roadblock for all of us. Um, and... Uh, you know, the, 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 the fact that some people feel that we have the luxury to discuss emotions versus facts, uh, I wish we were back to that. that as, as rough as that argument was, at least we were talking about the idea that there are some facts out there that can't, that are more important than feelings and, or, and then some feelings that are really, really important, maybe even as important as facts. But now we're dealing with the situation with no facts. So why am I talking about this, this on this particular episode? Because we had another issue again when it comes to fact versus reality, fact fact versus lack of reality when it comes to Israel in pop culture. On the most recent edition of Saturday Night Live, Michael Shea, who's the has been on the show for a long time, he's their newsreader for their weekend update spoof news uh, segment, and he you can look it up. I'll put it on my Twitter feed, and people have already put it up there for me actually. He talks about, uh, he had a story about how Israel has vaccinated most of its population or something like that, and, but, but they're not doing it for the Palestinians. I'm not going to repeat his joke exactly, but basically it was repeating this lie, this blood libel, this canard, that the Israelis are actively withholding the vaccine from the Palestinians who live in the Palestinian territories. Well, I'll, I'll skip to the chase. It's not true. But the reason why it's not true is very important because you can twist the facts around here and make it sound like it's true. When Israel entered into the Oslo Accords with the Palestinian Authority, one of the first things that the Palestinians gained, you know, asked for and got in those accords was autonomy when it came to, when it came to health policy. Now, of course, that autonomy in health policy hasn't done them very, you know, hasn't done very much for them. They don't really have great health care services in the West Bank, and, and Gaza probably is, hardly exists at all. And of course, a lot of Palestinians in those territories do come into Israel uh, 
to get free, serious medical care all the time. Uh, that is, an in, again, an incontrovertible fact. It's that you can keep it out of your list of facts if you so choose to denigrate Israel, which is what a lot of people do. But one of the things that they did get control of in the Oslo Accords was their health care policy. They're, they're, you know, again, Israel has socialized medicine. So if you want to be an independent country or an independent territory or have some degree of independence, uh, if you have a long list of the things that Israel controls for its citizens or, you know, for, or for Palestinians who were in the territories before 1993, then health care would be one of them. And that was one of the things they demanded. They wanted to have autonomy when it came to that. So Israel does not have the right without the permission of the Palestinian Authority and without full cooperation with them to do any kind of health care work in the territories, let alone the vaccines. Second of all, you have an issue where the Palestinians have refused anything that goes through Israel when it comes to any kind of aid. So this summer when the United Arab Emirates flew an entire, I think it was a 747, it was a large jet, into Ben-Gurion Airport filled with masks and other materials to help fight COVID, help fight the spread of COVID-19 in the territories. The Palestinians refused to take it. Why? Not because it came from the United Arab Emirates, but because that plane had landed on, in Israel, in Israeli soil first. <laughs> I mean, this is what we're dealing with here, with the Palestinian Authority. So it's one thing when you have a story like Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib promoting the lie that the Israelis are withholding the vaccine. It's one thing when you see it on a regular news program. But I have to say, and, I, and, I, and you know, listen, I like to be optimistic as much as I can be. And I'll preface this by saying that maybe this will just blow over. But it's, to me, extra depressing and extra daunting that this came on Saturday Night Live because in some ways it's, more, it's worse. It's seen by a younger and more impressionable population. It's not a super young audience watching Saturday Night Live, but it's a young audience. And it's one of those things where it really, really feeds off of the lack of information. This is a, you know, again, it's still a young audience. They're not likely to really know any of the facts, any of the major facts about the Middle East. And they're not going to hear good news about Israel on, yeah, I guess for a long time now. And I don't think that there's ever been a positive thing said on weekend update, probably nothing that negative either, but there's never really been that much positive stuff on the weekend update joke segment, at least in the last couple of years about Israel. So it's, 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 it's a little rough. It's tough to swallow. Um, for those of us who are really, really trying to promote the truth about Israel and the positive and accentuate the positives about Israel, this is a defeat. This is, or I mean, it doesn't have to be the end of the story, of course. It's possible that it can turn around. But this is definitely a, a bad bump in the road. And um, it's giving license to a lot of people who like to spread the usual lies about Israel. It's giving them all kinds of aid and comfort. And worse than that, it's giving them a platform to repeat the other lies that they like to tell about Israel. And again, I, I want to focus on one thing first here, because this is something that's very important to understand. And please take this, these statements and this statement I'm going to make and remember that it's coming from someone who worked in the news, who has worked in the news industry for more than a quarter of a century, who's followed a lot of politicians closely and a lot of newsmakers closely. Understand that so much of what is said by people who are given the benefit of the doubt is, of being very knowledgeable, and then maybe you don't agree with his or her opinion after that, but we all sort of take for granted that this 
person saying something on a news program or in a documentary or in, a, or in the newspaper is at least very knowledgeable about the region. Well, you can't take that for granted. Now, of course, I don't think that Michael Shea could probably find two or three of the countries in the Middle East on a map. He certainly doesn't know the history of Israel. I'm not even going to go there. But he's not alone. He probably he might know a lot more than the regular news anchors at NBC. <laughs> so I'm not really trying to single him out in any way. He, it's possible he's actually quite more knowledgeable than they are, but he's still not knowledgeable about... I'm sure he's not knowledgeable about the topic in general, but the overall Israeli-Palestinian issue. But there are a lot of people who we think are very, very smart about the Middle East. And maybe we disagree with them, but we could say, well, at least he or she is very educated. They really know the region. Well, you don't know that. We just don't know that. And we found that, for example, a lot of us might think like, well, a lot of these kids uh, who are really, really radical, for example, the universities with their anti-Israel marches and their all kinds of other things that they do, we figured that, well, they're at least in class, they're learning a lot of the stuff. Well, a guy at Berkeley, a professor at Berkeley, who's not a really big friend of Israel, did a survey and did a study about all the activist students at Berkeley. And he found that the, the overwhelming majority of the students who were anti-Israel were also the ones who were least informed about basic facts about not just Israel, but the whole Middle East. They couldn't find Israel on a map. They were very confused about the size of Israel. They didn't know any of the history. And they really didn't know the geography, as I said before. I mean, it wasn't just finding Israel on a map. They just did not even know the geography. They were completely, they were, they were, they were ignoramuses. I mean, there's really no other way to say it. And not everyone who hates Israel is an ignoramus. But they are until proven otherwise. And that's a really important thing that you need to understand about all people who are pontificating and all people who are talking on the news or talking in a newspaper or even being a professor in a a school. It doesn't necessarily mean they actually know the subject matter. You can get a tenured professorship at a university about writing about some very, very small, minor detail of a major issue. you You can get your PhD in history, for example, after you've written a dissertation about... um, one in one Native American tribe in one state. I'm not, and I'm not denigrating that level of scholarship. That's that's very interesting, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you know anything really about World War II, or you know anything really about slavery in America, or anything of those kinds of things. So it's just we take for granted. Maybe on on the negative side, we take for granted too much about people being good or bad people when we shouldn't do that, and we also shouldn't on a on a positive side, I think that we take for granted that people often are more informed than they really are. And we can't do that. doesn't mean that we have to challenge everybody all the time and be nasty about it. Or, or actually, I should say, it doesn't mean that we should think everyone is an idiot. But we should never take for granted that someone is educated or even knows some of the basic facts. It's just, it's, how many times have we found it to be not true that they ended up really, you know, they, and they ended up not really knowing so much of the basic rudimentary stuff. Now, there's another aspect of this, which I touched upon a little bit in the last edition of Novak Now, which is there's also a groupthink sometimes mentality or an accepted belief in the truth of a certain event in history or a certain result. That's also wrong. Now, on the last edition of Novak Now, I talked about the Kitty Genovese story, which was the story of the woman who was murdered uh, basically in public in Queens, New York in 1964, and how the general, cons- you know, the consensus 
uh, summary of that story was, oh, that, that was the woman who was killed and all those people just didn't do anything to help her. And of course, the facts are the exact opposite. There were, well, not the exact opposite, but there were people who tried to help her. There were people who called the police. There were people who risked their lives to run out and try to help her. They were just too late. Um, it may not have been an example of the best of New York and that maybe some people could have done a little bit more to help her faster. But she was not completely ignored by dozens of people as the story went, and most people still believe. If you ask nine people, if you ask ten people in New York today who are old enough to at least have heard about the Kitty Genovese story, they're going to repeat the, the misconception of that story because that's most of what has ever been reported. So you have that issue that's there. And, and I think that there are in, and I was mentioning that in the last edition of Novak Now, now of course we have situations where people have a general belief in a certain, what they believe is a fact or, or a summary or the, the sum total of a certain group of historical events. And it turns out that some of those historical events have been really depicted in, in, incorrectly. And what do you, you know, where do you go to get your reputation back when that happens? Um, I um, routinely, routinely recommend to people who talk about the news industry or maybe people who are young people who are thinking about getting into it. I often tell them, don't watch the movies that your average journalist, journalism buff or even journalist will tell you to, to, to watch. You know, like movies like All the President's Men, which is just you know, a completely fictionalized account of what happened in the reporting of Richard Nixon's uh, downfall. Um, they'll point to a couple of other movies like that. But one of the movies that I like is actually a complete fiction story, but it actually depicts, I think, some realities in our society, even, even though it's a 40-year-old movie, and that's a movie, Absence of Malice, with Paul Newman and Sally Field. And Wilford Brimley's in it, and there's a few other people who are you know, really great actors who are in it. And it's a wonderful story about how prosecutors sometimes when they can't charge someone or arrest someone for a crime because they don't have evidence, try to really smear the person by using either unwitting or willing accomplices in the news media. And it's just a great movie. And of course, I think the, new, the, the, the newer movie, Richard Jewell, which I saw, I think you could put that in a category, similar category. Now that is a true story, of course, of how the news media made it sound like this poor security guard at the Centennial Park bombing in 1996 during the Olympics in Atlanta was basically depicted as a suspect when he was not a suspect. And of course, he was completely innocent. We know who did it. It was Eric Rudolph, another, an actual domestic terrorist. But that's an important movie to watch also. I think if you see Absent of Alice, which again, admittedly is a fictionalized story, but based on some facts at the time, and then you see a movie like Richard Jewell, which is a true story, you get, to the, you get the understanding of where we've come when it comes to, or an understanding of how it, how it goes with <sighs> mis, mis, you know, misconceptions. There's probably still a lot of people in America who when you say Richard Jewell, say, oh yeah, that's the guy who did the Olympic Park bombing. I mean, I, I would hope that it's a lot fewer people than it, was, than it was 10 years ago and 20 years ago. But there's still probably a lot of people who believe that. And there's going to be a lot of people who believe these lies about Israel from till the end of time. And that's just going to be a very tough pill for us all to swallow. Uh, the answer, of course, is, again, what I've also been talking about a lot here on Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I've talked a lot about in the last several months about the, about the very passionate op- optimism, the 
the inspired optimism, optimism that actually has an edge to it, and is it just as, it can be just as exciting as the heavy negativity. It just has to be couched in the right way. Now, for those of you who really know your your Torah, for those of you who really know your Bible, you should know of, of and I've talked about it as well in the past. You should know about the one great instance in the Torah where we learn about how hard it is for a society to grasp the optimistic, more positive outlook on a particular story and how easy, how much easier it can be for them to get into a frenzy as they embrace the negative aspect of the same story, the same reality. And of course, I'm talking about the story of the, as we say in Hebrew, the Miraglim, the, the spies or the scouts the 12 scouts, one from each of the tribes who went and cased the joint, for lack of a better term, went to see the land of Israel just before the children of Israel were about to go in there to get an idea of what they would be facing when they got there. And 10 out of the 12 uh, scouts or spies decided to really accentuate the negative for whatever reason. And they whipped up the entire camp, the hundreds of thousands of people, in it was then the children of Israel into an absolute frenzy of fear and hysteria. And the other two scouts, spies, as, as, or you might want to call them, were saying, hey, it's, it's not going to be really easy for us to take over this land and all that kind of stuff. But they were much more optimistic about the same set of facts. They saw the same thing. They were looking at the same things and 10 of the spies got crazy about it and really focused on the negative and 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 two didn't and, and it's possible you know now that we we know a little bit more about the dissemination of news than we did at the time of, of, of first reading the torah maybe those 10 spies those 10 scouts who focused on the negative and, and whipped up that hysteria did it because it's a very powerful feeling to do so when you can get tens and thousands of or in the case of the children of israel at the time hundreds of thousands of people to all react the way you want them to react and react in a very visceral, powerful way. That's a very strong feeling. That's a very big feeling of power that you have in your hands. Now go to that same number of people and try to get, get them to be optimistic about something. It's not likely you'll have the same result. Even if you tell them about something that's a fait accompli, something that already is good, something good has already happened, they might cheer as, as a group for a long, for a short amount of time, but it won't last. And they certainly won't have a, a more self-perpetuating series of events or things that really show how powerful your influence is. Now, I think it can be done. I think that if you really focus on showing how important an, a, a positive development is, any given one, it could be, uh, it could be a, a cancer discovery, which, again, you probably heard me say many times here on Novak. Now, over the last four years... We've had so many advances in the fight against cancer that it probably eclipses the 30 years worth of discoveries that came before the last four years. I and mean, it's been very strong exponential growth in the fight against cancer in the last four years. And you haven't heard about it. Not only because the news networks are really focusing on other stories and those negative stories, but I also think that it's very possible they just don't know how to do it. I don't know if they know how to make positive stories as effective commercially or as effective and influentially as they could. In fact, I'm almost sure of it that they can't do that. So 
it's one of those things where it's just negativity, negativity, negativity. And when we get back to the, the, the opening topic about this blood libel against Israel, about them not supposedly not giving the vaccine to, to Palestinians, which they have no authority to do so. Just remember that. They, they are not allowed to administer health care in the territories or hand over things to them even, that they will not be accepted. And that has been the case over and over again. Will an individual Palestinian celebrity or politician go into Israel to get a free health care at a hospital? Oh, yeah, that they'll do. But coming into the territories and bringing something into them, that doesn't, that's, that's something that, is, that under the Oslo Accords is not, is not, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. But, you know, it's come to the point now where if you see a story in the news that mentions the Palestinians, it will be a negative story. Sometimes it'll be a negative story about them and some of their own leadership, but it will be a negative story. And what a great tragedy that is for the Palestinians is actually, you know, when, that they have become this human, the human weapons. I mean, even well, well before suicide bombing became a thing, the Palestinians were human weapons, human missiles in the propaganda wars against Israel. They exist almost entirely to try to make Israel look bad. And even as Israel is making these amazing peace deals with other Muslim countries, the Palestinians can't get out of their own familiar destructive pattern. So the Emiratis can make friends with the Israelis and talk about not only just the peace that they're having a secular, you know, from the secular side of their, of their governments, although I know obviously the you know, Arab Emirates is not a secular country, but you understand what I mean just from the government sort of bureaucratic point of view. But they're also talking about the cultural ties that Jews and Muslims have. Anyone who's been to Dubai in the last couple of months has been just overloaded with people, you know, with people and accounts of how, oh, you know, Jews and Muslims really have so much in common. And you get that all the time when you go into these countries right now, Dubai, Bahrain, anything else like that. And that's great because it's true and it's really wonderful. So even as that is happening, you have no change from the Palestinian side. The Palestinians exist in the news media and in the political arena for arena really only for one reason and is that and that is to either attack or make Israel look bad. That's that's why they exist and what a tragedy for the more than 1 million Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza. What a tragedy for them. That not only their own leaders but the rest of the world only sees them as this negative stick with which to beat up Israel either literally or figuratively or to just make, you know, make Jewish people look bad, the whole thing. It's such a tragedy. It's, it's not like we don't have compassion for these people, but their, their leadership and their whole way of life within the territories is, is really, it's really rough. It's really, really rough. And they exist so that people can say words like the occupation. And, you know, we should never, ever have anyone who purports to be a friend of Israel or is a friend of Israel accidentally or on purpose ever use the term occupation when they're describing a reality there. There's no part of Israel or, or, or the Palestinian areas that is occupied. Occupied is a loaded term. There are areas in Israel and in the West Bank in particular that are disputed but the only occupiers, based on, on, from a legal standpoint, of those regions over the years have been the Jordanians. The Jordanians occupied that territory. 
It's until they left after, you know, they were forced out in the 67 war. Israel and, and, and the Palestinians are dis, in a dispute over territories. There is no occupation from a legal standpoint. It has not been determined that this is from you know, all international law, that the, that the lands where Israel still is maintaining some level of control, which isn't a lot, by the way. Palestinians have a lot of autonomy in the West Bank, and they have complete autonomy in Gaza. But it's, 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 not, it's not a word that we should be using, and yet that, that's why they exist. They exist so you can say and create the image and conjure up the, the feelings that could get conjured up when you say occupation, when you say occupiers. Sounds like conquerors. It sounds like you know all kinds of images of 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 abuse of the people that are being supposedly occupied. I mean, you see where this all goes. And for much of the world, the Palestinians only exist to do that. In fact, I'll venture to say that if the word Palestinian appears in any story in any newspaper, it's going to be a negative story. It's going to be a story where some bad thing is going to be depicted. Some bad thing is going to be talked about. And that's, that's why, you know, it's, it's, it's sad in that, you know, that's an entire, you know, an entire group of people. And they're not a large group of people, even by Middle Eastern standards, but it's still more than a million people exist as a negative stick. They are the, they are human negative stories. They are a human bad PR. They're a human smear campaign. And so many of the, so many of those people are, deserve so much better than that. But I don't know if they're ever going to get it. I, I, I'll tell you this. Most of the Muslim and Arab people I know who are not Palestinians have told me over and over again that they are so frustrated with the Palestinians. They're sick of them already. That there's been so much effort on their behalf in the Arab and the Muslim world in general and in the Arab and Muslim diaspora in the United States and in, and in Europe. And that the Palestinian leadership never does anything with these chances and these opportunities and the support that they get. N- nothing positive. They don't try to really govern themselves in a, in a responsible way. They don't try to move on and try to just say, hey, we'll, we'll have our own kind of statehood if we, and we'll, we'll get what we can get. They just don't. They just don't play. They, they will not resolve this issue in a positive way. And not every Arab and every Muslim looks at the Palestinians uh, with, great, uh, with great sympathy anymore. They, they've really found themselves in a situation where they're frustrated with them. And you, you could feel that frustration and that disappointment in the speeches that were made by the Emirati and Bahraini leaders in the fall when, when the peace deals were, were finalized and signed between Israel and Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates. You could feel that. They were basically, they were, they were saying, hey, listen, we still care about you. This isn't us abandoning the Palestinians, but we've got to move on and, and, and do what's right for our people and, and hope that you'll join us. But, you know, it was really, they left it out. But you could see in their, reading in between the lines and looking at their body language and looking at their faces and looking at their eyes, you could tell that they had had it. That they were, they, they were already frustrated. And so when other people told me that over the years, both before and after the peace deals were signed, it, it resonated as true to me. I could tell that they really meant it. They weren't just trying to make their Jewish friend Jake feel better about the situation. So yeah, look, it's a tough blow to hear on Saturday Night Live on Weekend Update a, a, a lie about Israel because we know there'd be so many young people who listen to that who will believe it and think it's funny uh, to make fun of, of, of something that isn't true. But we just have to keep moving on and understand that we are moving in the right direction in so many other places. 
And hopefully we'll get over these kinds of things that pop up every once in a while that are so frustrating, but they shouldn't discourage us too much. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.